0: able to participate with them. Thank you for the prayer. Thank you for the men and women who uh, were here early this morning in study of your word and helping with the facility and just the many ways in which you are calling and equipping for the sake of this body. But now, Father, all the hearts and all the minds turn their attention to your word, to the Bible, to the presentation of your creation in Genesis, and uh, we ask, Lord, that as the The word is read, and as I endeavor to teach it, I ask, Father, that you have already begun that work in hearts to hear and to be prepared to receive what what will be taught. I pray, Father, that there would be a new awakening and awareness to your sovereignty and to your power in creation. And I also pray, Father, that many questions would be answered here this morning so that we may be strengthened in our assurance that your word, Father, is what it says it is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to return to day three, just briefly, this morning, to notice one other detail that we were uh, unable to get to last week. Before then, we move on into days four, five, and six today. Lord willing. So, open the Bible with me again to Genesis chapter one, and to day three in God's description of his creation. And of course, day three ends on verse 13. So we read already these verses, so I'll leave them be, and we'll just move directly into a discussion here. In this day, remember this is uh, still one of the days in which spaces are being created. Hopefully you all still have your chart. So in this space of day three, we saw... God creating the land, setting it apart from the water. We talked about last week how that meant it was one solid piece of land in the way that the text describes it. Then there were trees and plants placed onto the land and they were made to bear fruit immediately and they're all sitting there ready and waiting. Notice in the way that the text says that they were to reproduce on their own, that these trees were to continue producing and then reproducing later. So in verse 12, for example, or in verse 11 as well the fruit after their kind. And then later in verse 12, it says plants yielding seed after their kind. In other words, the trees and the plants have fruit on them, which we discussed last week was in preparation for someone who'd need to eat in in a future day. But there's also, of course, the basic reproductive purpose of the fruit. Forgetting man for a second, the trees are going to be able to sustain themselves in, in creation, in nature. But they were to reproduce in a very certain way. They were commanded to reproduce After their own kind. In other words, they are not permitted to reproduce into something other than their own kind. The word kind in Hebrew is min, M-I-N. And it's it's a difficult word to translate because there is not a good English equivalent. Some might think species, for example. But really, species is something man invented. The idea, the word, the, the concept. The idea that we can look at all of what is made in the animal and the plant kingdoms and categorize it by association. Certain things with with certain traits are in this box and then other things with different traits are in this box, but that's all a man-made construct. And and by the way, we we violate it all the time. There's all the time some new creature that's discovered that doesn't fit in any of our boxes. So then we either have to change the definition of some of the boxes or we have to find a new box for it. But that's just the problem we have as men, as, as humans, trying to make sense of what God has created. But God did have a construction process. He did have a framework, or the fancy word would be taxonomy. He did have a taxonomy for how the animal and plant worlds are organized and, and divided. The term is is bin, is mim. It's this idea of barement, of by its kind or of its kind. It it, it means a limit, a, a certain grouping, and within that grouping. That kind, whatever God has made, can reproduce itself within that kind, but there's a limit implied. It cannot reproduce of another kind. The kinds are separated in this way that God has designed the world, and there is no breaching of the walls. There is no animal creating something other than of its own kind. There is no plant producing a seed that results in another kind. But the word kind in Hebrew is a broader word than we use today when we say species. It's Perfectly likely that or very likely and perfectly reasonable that when God orchestrated the beginnings of the animal kingdom, he created a canine to use the term we might use today from which in its DNA was all the information necessary to devolve into the various kinds of canines we see today. So that within one kind, canine kind in the early in the first day of creation, the first day that, that this animal existed, there was in its DNA all the instructions necessary for that kind to create wolves and foxes and dogs and hyenas and so on, or whatever came out of that kind. But naturally, as the world has moved through time and as these animals have moved out and populated the world, the DNA has been been diluted and, and, and distributed such that now some of those animals have in their DNA less information than they started with in the first day that they were created. And because they lack now some of the information they began with, they're no longer able to produce everything that was there in the beginning. They have subdivided. So a wolf will not produce a hyena and a, and a fox will not be able to produce a, a, a greyhound necessarily. But that's not because they are different kinds, but rather because if they originated from the same kind in the beginning, but over time separated and made it into subgroups, they lost some of that DNA and are no longer able to reclaim it. We will talk extensively about this when we do the creation evolution discussion, as I've been promising. For now, I just want you to understand that the biblical concept is God created groupings or kinds that are forever separated from their other, from the other kinds, and the two shall never meet. They shall never cross. You'll never get a monkey from a giraffe. You'll never get uh, oak from a weed. These things are separated in their very beginnings, and God has established it as such. And there is no new source of information in their DNA. Once they began life as God created them, there is no new way for information to join that DNA. All that can happen is information can be lost. No new information can appear. So with that background, and as I said, that's only a beginning of the conversation. We will come back at some point to look at it in detail. But as we move on now, just understand this pattern continues. You will see it again in day four and day five and day six, particularly in day or uh, I'm sorry, in day three. We've seen it. You'll see it again now in uh, days five and day six. And in particular, with day six, this issue of reproducing after your own kind becomes critically important to understanding what God will do later in chapter three. So we'll put that aside for now. Let's look at day four, beginning in chapter One, verse 14. Before we move on, just a note. Fill out your chart, of course, if you haven't done so already. Day three should be the space discussion. What was created on day three? Put that into your chart. Now, day four, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed, placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So here you have now a discussion of an expanse again and a heaven again. You remember from last week we talked about how those words had dual meaning, particularly the, the word for heaven, shemayim. By its context, though, we can tell what he's talking about, can't we? Which uh, rakia is the name is the word in Hebrew for expanse? Which rakia is he talking about? Which expanse? And which shemayim? Which heaven is he talking about? One in which there is the moon and the stars and so on has to be outer space, what we call outer space, right? The space between the atmosphere of the earth. And what is higher yet, which is God's throne room, which we have no we have no way to see or localize, but we know it is a third heaven. So this is, the way the Hebrews would say it, this is the second heaven. The heaven that is not the earth, not the air, not the place where birds fly, but it is also not the third heaven where God dwells. It's in between, that's the second heaven. And in this space, he is now creating lights in the expanse to separate day from night, a greater light, a lesser light, and interestingly, and the stars also almost as if they are an afterthought to the process. Isn't it interesting? This is different from separating light from darkness, as we saw him do on day one. Here, the light-dark alternating, or in that earlier time, he created light, he created darkness, and then he set them in a linear timeline. First light, then dark. Light, dark, light, dark. And that separation was for the point of establishing the passage of time, a way in which we can track time. Now, He associates day with a certain light and night with different lights. So when the Bible says here that he separated, verse 18, he created these greater and lesser lights to govern the day and the night and separate the light from the darkness. The word separated here means distinguished. He used the sun, he used the moon to distinguish night from day. The day was distinguished from the night by the appearance of different lights in the sky. Remember, there was already light, there was already darkness, but now he has put into place these objects which he associates with light and dark so that we would have some way to distinguish them more so than just the fact that they come and go. It's curious to me and I think it should be worth noting. He doesn't name them here. He doesn't name the sun. He doesn't name the moon. In fact, there's nowhere in scripture that those names are given by God. It's interesting because throughout the creation story, he is naming things all the way up until Adam gets the opportunity to name the animal kingdom. Why doesn't God choose to name them? Well, Deuteronomy 419 would give us something of, a, of an answer to that. In Deuteronomy 419, in warning to the Hebrews, God says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. It would seem as though that he put the sun and the moon in the sky, but refused to give them names at this early stage of creation, because he didn't want any possibility to emerge in which the people of Israel or anyone else reading the Bible would come to think that they have spiritual significance, and that in their naming they became godlike, or to even suggest that we should give them undue attention. That's consistent, by the way, with the way he mentions the creating of the stars. Among unbelievers, scientists in particular, the fascination with the vastness of the universe and the awesomeness of what's there and the uncountable magnitude of what's out there and and all that must be imagined beyond what we can see, that is in itself a distraction from spiritual truth for many unbelievers. It becomes their God. It becomes their their place of worship, their altar, the, the creation itself, as Paul says in verse one. They worship the creation rather than the creator. But in the story, as it's told in Genesis, it's clearly not the most important feature of his creation, is it? It's almost spoken about as an afterthought. So one of the things that is often said with regard to the creation story, one of the reasons that scientists often point to for discrediting this story, this account, is this issue of the stars themselves. And in this sense, the stars are placed in the heavens so that they are visible on earth. The scripture makes that clear, does it not? They're there to help govern the night. Obviously, a star billions of miles away, billions and trillions of miles away, must already be presenting its light to the earth from the moment of its establishment in the heavens. Otherwise, it can't serve the stated purpose for it. It can't present its light to the earth. But scientists would say it must take millions of years for the light to travel from that far distant point until it reaches the earth and can be visible. And so scientists point to this physical problem and say it discredits the story as presented in Genesis. Clearly, this isn't the way it literally happened. Otherwise, there would have been no possible way for the light of those stars to be visible on the first moment. Of their creation. We still wouldn't be able to see them even today based on how far away they are. So how do we deal with this critique? The biblical response is simple and yet profound. God must have created that path of photons that connects us to the star just as he created the star itself all in the same moment as he placed the star in the heavens. He placed a beam of photons between us and that star so that right from the very moment there was already streaming light. And of course, from that moment, light then moves at its normal course as it continues to stream to us. But obviously, if God has the power to create all of this in the first place, it is not a stretch at all to say that he would then go the next step and simply place a created light of a line of light between us and and the stars themselves so that we would see them as he intends for us to see them. Why do we know that this is how he did it? How can we be so sure that that's the answer to the problem? Well, God gives three reasons for these objects to exist. And all three, of course, only work if the light of these objects is visible right away. In the list he gives in the text, verses uh, 14, verse 14, he gives three reasons. Let's look at each one. First, for signs. Signs. The word is off in the Hebrew. It means a wonder or an omen or a witness to something. There are at least three reasons or three ways in which these objects are signs for God. First, they bear witness to God's existence. The stars, the moon, the sun, they bear witness to his existence. Psalm 19 says, verse one, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, they pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the earth. And in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So, and Paul makes a similar argument, as you know, in chapter 1. Of Romans, talking about how the creation is uh, plenty evidence that God exists. So the first reason he puts these objects in the sky is that you would look up at them, you would have wonder at their existence and of the magnitude of their creation, and it would turn your heart and your mind toward God. It's a sign of God's existence. Secondly, they are a sign in the way they tell us of God's character or his nature or his attributes. Paul in Romans 1, as I just said, mentions it, verse 20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. It just doesn't just tell you that he is there. They are signs of who he is. They speak about his power, about the fact that he is a God of order, that he is a God of laws and rules. All of those things are inherent in the way he created And they tell us something about his nature. And third, these objects in the sky are signs of his plan for creation. He is going to use these lights as a sign. Have you all ever been to the opera or the symphony or something of that nature where there's an intermission? And they send you out into the lobby usually. How do you know when it's time to go back in and get to the other half of the show? The lights go down or they flicker, don't they? I want you to think that that is not a novel idea. We didn't come up with that first. God actually came up with that first. When the time comes that he is ready to show the world, explain to the world that the end is near, that his son's return as promised is about to occur, and for the unbelieving world, just the mere fact that there is a judge and judgment is coming, he will flicker the lights. And he will ask everyone to pay attention. Joel says in chapter 2, verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Can't get more visible than those things. Can't get more dramatic than that. God also says he created the light in the sky for seasons. So we have signs, the three of which I just described. And then secondly, the objects in the sky are there for our seasons. This is obviously something most students learn early in their education, early in their elementary education. The earth being positioned a certain way, rotating the earth in a certain uh, revolving around the sun a certain way, uh, tilted in its, its revolving a certain way so that there are not only the seasons of the year based on where we are relative to the sun, but there are also tides and other weather patterns based on the way our, our earth is tilted next to the moon. In Psalms uh, 104, the writer says, verse 19, He made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting. You appointed darkness and it became night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. Why are seasons important? Why does he want seasons? After all, you don't need them. Really, you don't need them. For the most part, if the world were without seasons, we'd do just fine if God permitted it. People live on the equator all the time without any seasons. Uh, in that sense, certainly. And before there was the flood, there's evidence to say there were no seasons and there was no dramatic change in weather. So we could live without them, perhaps. So why does he have them? Scripture would tell us it's another method of, of talking to the creation. It's another message in itself. And in this case, the message is of God's surety in his promises. That what goes round, comes round. That what he said will be, will be. And he himself uses seasons as that stamp of surety to his own promises. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, Solomon writes, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. And you know how that goes on, right? Just like the song. We can all sing it, practically. That whole part of chapter 3, that early opening to chapter 3, is an expression of the surety of what God has said. And that these appointed seasons come and go as proof that there is a cyclical, reliable cycle to what God is at work doing in the world. And then in Jeremiah, he says something very interesting with regard to that cycle. Jeremiah 5, 22. Starting there, the Lord says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so it can never cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar... Yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned, away, and your, or turned you away and your sins have withheld good from you. God says in that quick passage, that they could look at the world's regular pattern of harvest, winter, spring, summer, and so on, as proof of God's continual care of the world, of a pattern that He established for their benefit, and yet, because they don't take it for what it is and thank Him and praise Him over it, it's proof of how they've turned their back on what is obvious in the world, that God is at work in a sustaining of the world and in this pattern of provision. There's other places in which God says that His promises are as sure as the coming of the seasons, Further proof that he has set up that pattern for our benefit, to understand it. And then lastly, he says he created the lights in the sky for days and for years. This one's easy, right? What does it mean that there are lights in the sky for days and years? For counting time. Our calendar. Ever since the beginning of man, calendars have been based on the sun or the moon. The western Gregorian calendar is based on the sun. The Hebrew eastern calendar is based on the moon. That's why our Passover date moves around on the calendar or Easter date moves around on the calendar, because they're counting according to the Jewish calendar for Passover, which is lunar-based, and we're counting on a solar-based calendar, and they're not in sync. They have to be adjusted each year. By the way, why is counting important? Why is a calendar important to God? Why do we need to count time? Why do we need suns and moons and so on in order to count time? Is it a count up? That's how we do it, isn't it? Ten is bigger than nine. Twenty eleven is bigger than ten. We think about history in B.C. versus A.D., but still it's a general upward movement of time. But that's not the biblical view, frankly. The biblical view is it's a countdown. That the seasons, the years, the very fact that we can count in that fashion is not intended to let us count infinitum towards some higher number. It is a countdown. It is an awareness that things are promised and they're coming And the calendar lets us see that and understand how close we are to things God has promised. That's how the Jews could know that on the day Jesus walks into Jerusalem through the East Gate, that they would be assembled waiting for their Messiah to arrive, because for those who understood and believed Scripture, they knew the prophecies of Daniel that told them this was the day that they should expect to see their Messiah arrive. And there were some there waiting for him, though not everyone. It's a countdown to the events God has planned. And today, no different than any other day, we are in the process of counting down till the return of our Messiah and to the establishment of his kingdom. Do you notice what's not in the list? Sun and moon and stars are called into existence for three reasons, but one of those reasons is not so that we would have light. Now, it does talk about light, if you notice. There is a governing of the light day and night. There is placing them in the expanse to give light on earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light and so on. But yet, light has already been established in the world. In other words, the source of light is not these objects, though light is embodied in them. For a time being, for just a temporary time, they are the thing we look to when we want to see the source of our light. God has embodied the light in those objects. And chemically, uh Biologic or or, or uh, geologically, I guess, chemically, we understand how they are producing light. We understand how the sun burns and that burning of, of uh, that, that fusion of, of hydrogen creates light. But the text makes clear that's not the only way light exists. It just happens to be the way we perceive it today for the way God designed it. But when the sun is gone, we'll still have light. There'll still be a source apart from the sun. All right, so day four, Your chart should show a filling now of the space and the filling should be obviously sun, moon and stars. Let's move on to day five. Chapter one, verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves and with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. This one should be simple, shouldn't it? You have the fifth day filling the expanse that was created on day two. Correct? By the context, here again, we know which heaven we're talking about now. We have moved from the second heaven to the first heaven, the air, in other words, the place where birds fly. Self-evidently in this case, because he just created them. Now, this is an important uh, day because of some new detail on this day. For the very first time, we have living creatures in God's creation. Living. The word for living in Hebrew is kind of It means literally a living soul or a living being. By the way, uh, by the way it's described here in the text, we know this is a new kind of life. It's different than plants because it represents conscious life. And in that sense, it's a different kind of life. By the way he made these creatures, you're going to come to understand uh, that they serve a very useful purpose for God in his plan, not only for the earth itself, for the creation itself, but for his plan of redemption, for God's plan of redemption. Because kind of fesh, the living soul, or more literally, the breath of life, they can experience a death Similar to men. Pl- plants lack kind of flesh. They don't have a living soul. They can die. Uh, that our family self is testimony to that. Uh, they can die, but it's not death in the same sense as a man's death or an animal's death. And we instinctively understand the difference, don't we? We do not mourn the loss of a plant. At least not in the same way that we would an animal or a person. Very few people do. Some of you are looking at me going, well, you don't know my plants. But truthfully, no matter how broken up somebody might be over the loss of a plant, it's not going to feel the same. We instinctively see the difference. There is a kind of life to an animal that is more similar to that of a man than it is to a plant. And on this day, God brings that kind of life into being on the earth. Why is this important? Well, later, God is going to use the difference between Plants and animals, and in particularly the way he uses animals in the sacrificial system of the law to demonstrate the nature of sin and its consequences. And the law never makes provision for the death of a plant in that way. But death of animals becomes central to the sacrificial system of the law so that it can make a point to men. So the, the fact that animals are created with a different kind of living nature here is important and ultimately useful to God in his plan of redemption. Now, The other thing I want you to note on this day before we move on is you want to notice here that the animal life of the world first appears in the seas. The first living creatures are sea creatures together with the birds. That gives us opportunity to revisit for just a moment the day-age theory. You remember that theory from a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago, I think, or maybe it was last week, where we looked at the thought that many have proposed, particularly among Christians, that The days of creation are not literal 24-hour days, but rather they are meant to be understood as long ages of time, preferably millions or if not billions of years. That would be the way it's taught. And as you remember, the reason this view has even come into being is because there are Christians who uh, believe in what science has taught them about evolution, and as such, they work very hard to find some way to take the text of Scripture and marry it to what the... So, uh, scientific world says about evolution and try to harmonize them, try to find some way in which the two could be seen as both true. And one way in which some have tried to do that is with this day, age theory. And they will look at this particular day. They will look here at day five and they believe that what you see taking place in day five actually argues for their point of view, supports their point of view, because it would suggest to them that the order of events in creation supports evolution's argument for the way life arose on Earth. They argue that the evolutionary record is consistent with this story by virtue of the fact that in the days of creation, the, the fossil record seems to mirror these, the, the order of what's going on in creation. And the geologic record and evolutionists will claim that in that record, that the earliest animal life began in the water and the earliest complex creatures were water creatures and then they eventually moved and evolved onto the earth to become land animals, which is the day five to day six transition that you see in the book of Genesis. And if we just allow those days to represent millions of years instead of 24 hour periods, it all lines up nicely, doesn't it? That would be their argument. Scientists will refer to something in the geologic record called the Cambrian explosion. It's the term they use to explain A period of time in the geological column, what they claim is a history of time looking backward, a point in that time in the column where there's a layer of dirt, where there's a tremendous explosion in the diversity of life. Prior to that, below that level in the column, there's very little life. After that point, there's tons, and it all seems to show up in one layer, one distinct colored layer of clay. And they argue that that is some point in the evolutionary history of the world in which life suddenly exploded. It just, it, for reasons they don't understand, it took off. The Cambrian explosion, they refer to it. And as they study fossils in those deposits, they notice, of course, that they're mostly water creatures with, as you move up the column, larger and larger creatures, land, animals, and so on. So day-age uh, theorists would turn to this part of Genesis and say, this supports my theory. Well, apart from all the previous critiques which I've offered, to the day-age theory, going back uh, a couple of weeks, there is a serious hole in their view, a serious deficit at this point as you look at the record. Because according to Genesis, God created both water creatures and birds, same day, same time. Or, from a day-age point of view, same age. But according to evolutionists, birds came much, much, much later. They came even after the animals on the earth. According to evolutionists, it was water creatures, Land creatures followed last by birds. So, the Christian who believes the day age theory and thinks that this is representative of the order of evolution, they're going to have a problem in which they have to admit not only are the lengths of time stated in the Bible not literal, they're not days, they're actually millions of years, but now they're also going to have to maintain that the sequence of events is not meant to be literal either. Because it's out of whack with what evolutionists propose. But essentially, that just begins to beg a big question, doesn't it? If if the days are not days, and if the order is not the order, then what is meaningfully accurate about this account at all? Why do I even care about recognizing it or reconciling it with evolution? If it's this far off to begin with, there doesn't seem to be much reason or merit in harmonizing them. I would just throw this out, call it a story, and stay with my science. Because they're so far apart, there's no logical way that two can be married up and that we can claim this is a description of evolution taking place in the way the world is said to have begun by scientists. It doesn't work. So here again, Christians are faced with a fundamental question. Is God's word literal or not? There's really no in-between. Do we trust it to mean what it says, or must we invent a creative alternative in order to please ourselves? That's the question you have to face. In my experience, if we place our faith and our trust in it, even before we fully understand it, then God is good to bring us that complete understanding over time. On the other hand, if we doubt it from the beginning, He will often refrain from revealing the truth to us because He doesn't want to reward pride and arrogance and self-dependence. That's been my experience. Until I gave myself over to a faith in it, He didn't make it start to make sense in a way that I could see how it married up with science. Until I was ready to do that, though, it just seemed to be unapproachable. By the way, again, not to p- continue to plug this, but in the story, in the evolution versus creation discussion that is uh, forthcoming, we're going to look even more at issues of the order of creation here, of what's going on and how it compares to the geologic record. And later in the book of Genesis, particularly in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to have a very clear understanding of why the geologic column as it exists today shows animals in the particular order that they show in the water that uh, in the in the column that's reflected by the mud and the deposits of mud and water that have created it over over time. So it'll be very obvious why it is the way it is, according to Scripture. So let's go filling our chart. Fifth day should be easy. Birds. Notice you have the two expanses of water that were split now each has been filled in its own way with birds and with fish, sea creatures. A few minutes left. Let's go to day five, uh, day six. Genesis 1, 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good, I'm pausing there because obviously day six is a long day and we won't get through all of it today. But we're going to start with the living creatures that fill the final space, the earth itself. The names used in English here may sound arbitrary. Cattle, creeping things and so on. But they're very specific in the Hebrew. They have a very specific sense. Cattle refer to animals that will become domesticated. And beasts refer to animals that are not domesticatable. Did you ever notice that, by the way? Has that been something you picked up on? It's curious, isn't it? There are some species, as we use the term, some species of animal you cannot domesticate no matter how hard you try. On an isolated case, here and there, you might get one that is docile enough that someone can tame it to some degree, but its offspring won't be tameable. It's always considered dangerous. Even animals like squirrels, squirrels are not domesticatable by and large. Some people get lucky enough, if they even try, to, to create one or, or, or train one so that it's no longer dangerous, but they're never quite predictable. Obviously, a lot of bigger cats are never quite predictable. You can't tame them. Wolves are generally considered non-tameable, even though you might get them trained well enough that they can be handled. But you'd never want to bring one into your home and use it as a pet. They're not domesticatable. And then there's other animals that they are so easily domesticatable, we make farms out of them. There are differences in the way God designed them, and that's reflected here from the very beginning in the text. Cattle, meaning domesticated, beasts, meaning those that will not give to man's domesticative efforts. Now, we know at this point, as he's created these animals and the ones prior in the sea and in the air, we know at this point there is no discussion of death. There's no death in the world, at least not yet, Right. And God has not proclaimed that anything would die. That doesn't seem to be in his plan at all at this point. They're being brought into existence. They're told to live and they're told to reproduce and multiply such that they fill the earth. So that would mean that there would also be no fear among the animals one to another. Animals wouldn't threaten one another. And of course, by extension, that means they would never threaten humans either. There's no prey. There's no predator. If, if an animal is going to eat another animal, that would mean there'd have to be death. But death has not shown up yet in the record. That would tell us that every animal here, wherever they were made, is going to eat something that doesn't require a death. That's also how we can see the difference between plants and animals. For a plant to be consumed by an animal is not death. There's no living soul. There's no kind of flesh being ended when that occurs. But animals are not to eat one another, such that even a large, potentially fierce animal like a dinosaur, the words we use today are dinosaurs, large reptile-like creatures, could have been created and roamed the earth and ate plants and posed absolutely no threat to human beings whatsoever or to any other animal because death itself has not been brought into existence by God. And therefore, it can't happen. This is the natural, planned, intended state for God's creation for the animal kingdom. This is how it's supposed to be. And this is not the exception. This is the norm. What we have today is the exception. How do I know that? Well, in the future, when God restores the world to the state in which he intends it to be, in the new world, in the kingdom that is to come, there is a description, a really famous one you may know out of Isaiah, of what the world will look like, particularly what the animal kingdom will be like in that future day. Isaiah 65, 17 beginning reading there, Isaiah talks about this coming world. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. So this is the introduction of the fact that he says, I'm going to build this new heaven for for Israel, new world rather for Israel. Later down in that chapter 65, verse 24, he starts to talk about what the animal kingdom will be like in that future kingdom. Verse 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That's the future state of the animal kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. One of the things that's encouraging about this beyond the obvious that there's no death and that we don't have to fear animals and that. There won't be that kind of prey and predator relationship any longer. But one other facet of this that I think is particularly encouraging to many people is the the age-old concern, at least I've heard it many times, will my pet be with me in heaven? Well, I can't promise that your pet will be there in the form of a a similar animal you'll recognize, but there will be animals. And there'll be animals that don't hurt each other, that have no prey-predator relationships, don't hurt men anymore. The fact that there are animals in this time is, to me... Proof enough that pets are an entire, entirely possible for us in that time. Better than the ones we have now, which in my case wouldn't be hard. That, that's the promise of what, the, of what we will see in the animal kingdom. So as God has created them here on day six, they're at that early state as well of, of no prey, no predator relationship, no death, no worries. Even if you read on through that text in Isaiah, it says even a child will be able to play with a deadly snake and will not be harmed. Because there's no worry. Now, we're past time, but I want to take one more moment with your patience and and end on one more thought so that when we come back in next week, we'll be looking at the next major piece of the story in day six. As God has ended each day and as he's at this point in day six, he has remarked on each case in each case as he's finished today that it is good. And if you remember, I challenged everyone when we were looking at it back at the beginning, I said that implies a purpose or a, a reason for creation And it's beneficial to that purpose. It meets God's need for some reason. That's why he says it's good. So that begs the question, what is the purpose? What is this need that he's trying to fulfill or that he's trying to meet? And how are these things he's doing good for that purpose? What is the connection? Well, the answer to that question has always been the same. Each day has been good in its own way because each day is supporting an ultimate purpose he's moving toward. And, of course, these days have produced a world in which everything is good, perfectly good for a single purpose, and that is as a home for man. As a home for man. Remember when I told you that this, that I asked you that question, or I told you the right question to ask is not how could this happen so quickly. The right question to ask is why is he taking so long? Remember that? Because if he wanted to create the world, he could have done it in an instant. But instead, he has taken six 24 hour periods in a very deliberate process, creating it in a very structured way that we can chart and we can follow. And all of it is to say, I've got a purpose here. I want you to understand my purpose. I want you to see the method of my madness here, so to speak. And the reason is for man. The entire plan of creation, all that he's done up to this point, is for man. Look at what he's done. Using light and dark to communicate good and evil. To who? Not to the animals. Lights in the sky, he says, to tell time? Who counts time? Animals? For signs, for seasons. Who cares about signs and seasons? Then there's this atmosphere, this this shamayim, perfect for men to breathe. Just what we need, nothing more, nothing less. Seas to produce the weather and provide for food. Land and trees, and the trees with fruit ready to be eaten the moment somebody shows up. Who's going to eat the fruit first day? And then, of course, animals for company and for labor. Everything is building toward this single purpose to make a suitable home for God's most important creation. So as we end there, and we come next week and we look at verses 26 and onward, keep in mind, all that is in this world now, all that's been done, all that's ready and waiting and created on this early stage and then continues to this day, has at its heart a single purpose, and that is for you and I to know that God has created this world for our existence But again, that begs a bigger question. Why does He want man on the world? Why does He need us? What what is it that He's at work doing to create men in the first place? That's where we go next week. Let's end there in prayer. Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that out of what we've learned today, You would encourage and and instill in us a desire to be good stewards and uh, careful managers of the world that You've created for us. Let us never take it for granted. Let us never abuse it, Father. I pray that we would be conscious of ways in which we can show our faith through a loving and, and conscious effort to be careful with what you've given us. And all that we do in that way, Father, may it glorify your name. But, Father, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't remind myself and, and uh, place before you as well the truth that it's not been created for its own sake. That if it never rises beyond a worship of the creation, then it's all for nothing. That we don't save it for its own sake and we don't preserve it because it deserves to exist in its own right. We we recognize it and, and value it for what it is, Father, a gift to us. That we may be strengthened by it and enabled to live by it and, and that through it all we may use it to glorify Your name. And uh, I do pray, Father, that we would keep that proper perspective in every way so that while we work to preserve it and protect it, we never elevate it beyond its, its holy and, and intended purpose, uh, purpose, and that is that it might point all the creation to know you. Thank you, Father, for this study. Continue to guide us through it and bring others to learn with us, if that be your will. And send us out from here, Father, ready to testify to the truth of your little literal word. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.